baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. So here's a picture of uh, Lucy Hicks Anderson in 1945. She was taken to trial for having signed a marriage license as a woman, um, but she really affirmed her identity as a transgender woman at that time by saying she had lived... That's Christina Linden walking me through the many historical ticks on a massive timeline emblazoned across an entire wall of the room that we're in. It's a timeline of LGBTQ history. Now, this timeline needs a whole wall because it goes well beyond the more familiar events of queer history. Like Harvey Milk's assassination and the Stonewall Uprising. And instead, it delves into some of the lesser known events from queer communes that sprung up in the 1970s to the traditions of indigenous people, this timeline is aiming to tell a more complete history. There's a lot that's often left out as people make attempts to create kind of a clean narrative around LGBTQ history. I'm Keith Benconi, this is In Depth, and today on the program, we're visiting the Oakland Museum of California to take a tour of their ongoing exhibition, Queer California, Untold Stories. We're going to try to learn what these hidden voices from the past have to teach us today. Um, and I just wanted to start by saying that this exhibition is both a history show and an art exhibition. Again, our guide in all this is the exhibition's curator, Christina Linden. So it combines historical material, things we borrowed from archives, uh, documents, photographs, costumes even, with contemporary artworks. So and as she shows me, there's a lot going on in the today. exhibition hall, from pieces of art... This piece here is a painting by James Goebel, a San Francisco-based artist. Two collections of historical objects. We also have a number of materials related to Jose Saria, who was a drag performer, performed operas every part. And an array of multimedia displays. They stayed there and were gay there. Not very gay there, just gay there. Once the tour was done, Christina Linden was nice enough to sit down with me for a conversation about what the exhibition is hoping to capture about LGBTQ history. Uh, Christina Linden, thanks so much for speaking with us. Uh, glad to be here today. Thanks for coming in and seeing the exhibition. Absolutely. It was a, was a ton of fun to take a walk of uh, the grounds. And I, I, I guess the, the first question that we want to ask is, you know, given that the whole point here is to tell untold stories about queer history in California, what was it that attracted you to that notion? Are there a lot of untold stories that really are worthy of more consideration? There are absolutely a lot of undertold stories. I would say if I found out about it 
somebody told it before because they carried it, they cared enough to preserve it in some form. Uh, but there, uh, there are so many undertold, underrecognized stories within this history of LGBTQ people in California, and certainly many more than we were able to represent in this exhibition here as well. I think one of the most important outcomes for me of doing this show is if people come and see it. Um, and are compelled to tell stories that we weren't able to, to, to include. And we certainly heard from some of those people already who came and say, oh, this is, a, this is some great material, but there's this facet of my own experience or something I know about from someone else that, that I don't see represented here. And so I'm going to put that down in some way. I'm going to make a podcast or write a book or, or tell that story. Um, so if this can be a kind of starting point, I think that's fantastic. Do you feel, I mean, I, I think a lot of people might argue that queer stories in general are undertold just as a whole. Uh, do you think that this is just kind of a, a rich space for uh, discovery and, and, and learning a lot of stuff that has been a little bit under-reflected upon? Uh, yeah, I think that's certainly true. I think it's, it's absolutely true that anything that's non-normative, which to say, you know, doesn't belong squarely in a sort of mainstream is under-recognized, under-represented, often also actually suppressed, forgotten, or erased um, deliberately because it doesn't, it doesn't support that, that kind of mainstream narrative. But within LGBTQ histories, there are some stories we know better. So we've heard more about Harvey Milk. We've heard more about Stonewall in New York. Um, and we've heard more in general about material that relates to white, gay, cisgender men in many cases because those are the people who've had the resources and the space to save materials, to get those stories told and published, um, to, um, and, and to, to control narratives. I mean, that's the segment of the population in general that control narratives and historically women, transgender people, people of color, um, other gender non-conforming people, intersex people, all of those bisexual people as well have been left out of, of the stories as they've been told about uh, LGBTQ culture. And that was one of the themes that you brought up during our tour, this notion that there is uh, is and was uh, a certain amount of conflict between various groups that perhaps felt at one time or another that they weren't fully respected or or or, or fully affirmed by uh, other folks. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that aspect of uh, queer history is reflected in the exhibits. Sure. Well, if we look at some of the groups that refer to themselves as homophile organizations prior to uh, the advent of what was called gay liberation initially. Um, those are groups that supported rights for gays and lesbians specifically. So we have material in the exhibition about the Mattachine Society, an early gay rights organization, and the Daughters of Belitis, an early lesbian rights organization. Um, but moving forward, sort of in alignment with women's lib and other kinds of, um, you know, awareness and activist activist organizations of the early 70s and late 60s, um, building on civil rights, uh, civil rights work that was done around uh, race in this country, there were, uh, there was a new wave of liberation movements. And it was initially it was called gay liberation, because, again, it was a movement that was spearheaded and dominated really by gay men. And I think Within these histories, there have been various moments where people have talked about coming together and supporting each other and fighting together for rights and fighting together for rights for, you know, LGBTQIA 
plus people, but at many junctures in this story uh, that attempt to create a sort of unified front has actually left various people out. So where the focus has been um, on gay men, women have often felt like their needs and interests and their own really significant activist contributions uh, have been sidelined or marginalized. And the same again we could say um, certainly for transgender people and for people of color uh, across the spectrum. I think it's important to remember is that there have been a lot of moments in this history where people have come together and a lot of places where, you know, there has been what we might uh, describe as progress made in terms of rights for LGBTQ people. But there's also been a lot of places where even within these groups, there's there's been loss and conflict. And certainly if we look at the end of the timeline that's represented in the show um, and some of the legal ramifications of the Trump administration being in power, there's, there's a, a lot of... Uh, a lot of loss to represent. Reflecting upon that right now in 2019 and, and all the different ways that uh, queerness has been thought about in California, how, does, how do you think that that enriches the way that we think about this set of issues now? You know, I did a lot of thinking about how this show could speak to the idea that not belonging to the mainstream, like wanting to create a kind of non-normative culture and cultivate that and sustain that through things like alternative forms of kinship and through imagine, imagination and creativity and the need to imagine a different future because one didn't find a clear place for oneself in the present. The way that this is part of a very long history of the creation of a vibrant queer future in California um, and wanting to really find ways to highlight aspects of that history across centuries rather than just decades was really important as we set out to create this exhibition. You're listening to In-Depth on KCBS. We've been speaking to curator Christina Linden about the Queer California Untold Stories exhibition on display now at the Oakland Museum of California running through mid-August. So now that we've walked the grounds a bit and spoken to the curator, it's about time we met some of these artists whose work is on display and also learn about some of those untold stories that their work reflects. First up, we're going to be speaking with Nikki Green, an artist who works in a number of disciplines, including sculpture and ceramics. I've just been really, I think, connected to art making in the Bay Area, but particularly um, like the intersections of queer community and art making here. Her piece commemorates the Compton's Cafeteria Riot, which took place in San Francisco in 1966 as a response to discrimination and harassment against the cafeteria's largely transgender clientele. Compton's really functioned as this kind of um, hub and kind of network for folks in the neighborhood to gather and sort of be in community together. But because of that visibility, it also created this kind of tension around um, police surveillance. Um, and so cops would come in and give folks a really hard time. 
All of this setting the stage for the 1966 riot. Cops eventually came in and started to sort of like rough folks up. And the sort of mythos is that a cop like grabbed a trans woman and she like threw her coffee in his face. And then folks started throwing dishes and somebody threw like a chair through the plate glass window. And then, you know, like a newsstand was set on fire and it was this kind of um, cumulative riot that happened around sort of having had enough. It's among the first recorded LGBT riots in the U.S., preceding the more famous Stonewall riots in New York City by three years. But Green says for many years afterwards, the events at Compton's were largely forgotten. Because Compton's was so centered around trans women and sex workers, there was this kind of like potential unpalatability that Stonewall's concentration of gay men allowed like the riot to enter into the mainstream in a way that a riot of sex workers and trans women like wouldn't be able to. I'm not really sure, but I think the the reality is that Compton's really got buried in a kind of profound way. It was buried to such a degree that when Green went looking for items from the actual event, she really didn't find much. Because of that, I guess I sort of notice this whole as like a kind of object focused person I would sort of fantasize about what it would be like to have access to to all of these dishes that were really like the instigators of the modern trans um, like uprising in San Francisco and um, not actually having access to those dishes Remember, as the story goes, the rioters used their cups and dishes as weapons during the incident. So, unable to find them in the archives, Green decided to make some cups of her own. My reaction is like, you know, if there are not objects available, then I will make those objects and I will sort of create that, you know, physical ephemera as a way to sort of satisfy that desire for them. What she created was a series of commemorative mugs upon which she emblazoned the Jean Compton's Cafeteria logo. Now, all these mugs she used for this? Well, they were blank mugs that she actually found at thrift stores in San Francisco. And because they are used cups, who knows? Maybe they are the real deal. Maybe they are leftovers from the 1966 incident. It's possible. By sort of taking charge of the archival hole that's left in the sort of lack of um, archival materials around this. I'm sort of exerting my connection to the community and to this history by producing these objects and kind of filling that hole. To close our conversation, I asked her what it is that she's trying to preserve here. What is the legacy of the Compton's Cafeteria Riot? In my mind, the the sort of lasting legacy is this idea that we sort of need to look towards sort of like the the most marginalized and kind of like continue to dig and uplift those like maybe who are more marginalized than we are and sort of allow these like um, these stories and these voices to be 
just as, if not more, visible than ours. There's always something sort of like just below the surface and that we have to continue to dig and like excavate um, our histories. Two of Nikki Green's mugs are on display at the exhibition. Once again, you're listening to In-Depth on KCBS. Today, we're speaking to the creative minds behind Queer California Untold Stories, an exhibition at the Oakland Museum of California. Up next, we're going to be speaking with artist Tina Takamoto. Her work on display at the exhibition examines life under internment for Jiro Anuma. Anuma was a Japanese-American caught up in the mass internment program carried out in the U.S. during World War II. So Jiro Anuma was a Japanese-American immigrant who came to San Francisco in the um, early 20s. Um, he spent most of his adult life in the San Francisco Bay Area, and there are these amazing photos of him in the late 20s and early 30s around Japantown um, with you know predominantly Asian-American men. Um, posing in, um, for photos of each other uh, in Golden Gate Park and uh, throughout the city. Now, we don't have much to go on about Anuma's life beyond a collection of photos and some items that he left behind, but Takamoto says... It was clear by the kinds of materials that he kept that he was, a, a, you know, a gay man. Also captured in Anuma's photos his life in the internment camp. And when I came across these photographs, I was really shocked and amazed um, because it was the first time that I even considered that there would have been same-gender-loving people in the incarceration camps. She says that was an eye-opening experience for her. Partly because I'm fourth-generation Japanese-American and my parents and grandparents on both sides of my family um, had experiences of the concentration camps, but it had up to that point never occurred to me that there would be LGBTQ individuals um, in the camps as well. Takamoto did her best to piece together Anuma's life, and based on the archival evidence she had, she managed to pull together a portrait of a working-class man who, in the years preceding World War II, made a living working in a laundry, and who managed to find a vibrant community. So from the visual evidence, it feels like in the 20s and 30s, he had a pretty robust um, gay life in San Francisco. Um, and there are, there's also one photograph of him that was taken in the actual professional photo studio in Japantown that has, you know, um, like a pond and... Uh, um, fancy columns and different things. So they're clearly, he and his cohort were clearly imagining themselves in this kind of dandyish cosmopolitan world that their um, actual lives probably didn't completely resemble. So Takamoto wanted to explore in her art, what would life have been like for Anuma? You know, this man who clearly had a lot of personality and a love of fashion, how would he have coped with a life of confinement while interned during the war years? 
to capture this, she staged a music video with herself playing the role of Anuma. From his archival collection, I'd learned that he had worked in the mess hall in the prison camp. And so I was trying to think about the hours that he might have spent making bread or baking or working in this um, mess hall environment um, while he was dreaming of the muscle men that he admired from you know his the magazines that he collected. So I constructed a, a scenario in which the character of Juro Anuma is is um, baking bread, making bread, so um, making bread dough and then forming it into these large loaves. And this is set to a Madonna ABBA musical mashup. That is about longing and waiting and desire and waiting for a lover who will never arrive. And then by the end of the performance, the character um, is fed up with um, dreaming of his uh, the muscle man that will never arrive and essentially becomes the muscle man. It strikes me as, on the one hand, kind of a celebration of this unique character and uh, the u- unique way that he was relating to the world around him, but it's also very poignantly sad you know, that you know there were so many things uh, that he clearly desired that were not available to him. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you thought about uh, that aspect of the work. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that my approach was a combination of of humor and grief. Um, so it is true that I spent a lot of time thinking about the hours of loneliness and isolation and desire um, that he and other adult queer people would have experienced. Um, But I also wanted to open up a space of fantasy in which um, within this fantasy realm, the character is able to fulfill his desire and is also able to um, break out of and resist the the confines of of the, uh, you know, the circumstances of incarceration. so there's there's clearly, you know, humor and I would say um, sadness or longing and desire that is a part of this work. Mm. Yeah, and I, I I guess maybe more poignant or more striking uh, in this individual's story than maybe somebody that was part of a family is uh, he did have or seems to have this very unique self-expression that was there to be expressed and and. One of the real losses for him was he he lost uh, the opportunity to express that for a number of years. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, when I look at the his photographs from the 1930s, I see them as aspirational photographs. In other words, I see, you know, him posing with his friends and lovers as partly a way of imagining what their lives would be in the future. And I really do believe that the wartime incarceration um, arrested or at least severely impacted his ability to fulfill those aspirations. You know, because by the end of his life, he uh, um, was living in Japantown in uh, a, 
a residence hotel, so a, a very sort of meager situation. Um, he did have some very close friends, um, but you know the truth is that he died alone, and um, his body wasn't even discovered for a number of days. So I feel like that ending to his life is one that was definitely um, marked by the trauma of the wartime experience. That was artist Tina Takamoto. She's the Dean of Humanities and Sciences at California College of the Arts in San Francisco. To wrap things up, let's check in one last time with curator Christina Linden. I wanted to know, given everything that's changed over the course of the years that's tracked in the museum exhibition, has the meaning of queer art changed as well? feel like those questions have been resolved more with time? Like, is there less of, in 2019, is, is there less of that feeling of pressure and, and uh, you know, outside pressure from the mainstream society than there was in the 1970s? Does that affect the way that uh, queer artists think about their art now uh, and, and what they are focusing on and what they're trying to express? I would say for certain segments of LGBTQ population, there's absolutely not less pressure than there was in the 1970s. In fact... You know, there's people who are recorded in oral histories, for instance, that are presented by an artist named Kate Clark in the exhibition about San Diego in particular, where people are lamenting something that felt much clearer. They came out into a lesbian community specifically um, that was visible, and they knew where to go to find that community. And there was a lot of support and a really clear sense of identity um, that's actually much more fraught for people today, I think. So I wouldn't describe that as a... Um, as something that's become less complicated for people, but I certainly see it um, continue as an important theme for artists in particular making work around these issues. And last question for me, what do you think is the importance or the, the, the relevance of reflecting on this history? Here we are in 2019, you know, it's a couple years away now from uh, gay marriage being legalized, but also just a few months now away from the transgender ban going into effect in the United States military. So what, what should we here and now be drawing on from these past experiences? Uh, I think that people will come to their own conclusions about this. And again, there's no one answer to that. But I think overall, we call this exhibition Queer California, because I think the term queer is one that operates as an umbrella term, um, under which we might see the possibility for uh, coming together and supporting one another and paying less attention to the differences between the identities that are represented by some of the other terms. But I think this is also a moment where legal rights and cultural norms around how people are able to operate are really um, under threat. And so looking, looking more broadly at these histories and thinking about how we might continue to imagine, manifest, and fight for a queer future are really essential. Uh, Christina Linden, thank you so much for speaking with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to In-Depth on KCBS. We've been speaking to some of the people behind Queer California Untold Stories, an exhibition at the Oakland Museum of California. The exhibition is running through mid-August. 
Remember, you can catch past episodes of In-Depth, including this one, online at KCBS's website or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. We'll see you next time. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.